This morning's reading comes from Joel chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 11. So I'll just give you a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds just to find you, find it if you want to read along. Okay. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it. And let your children tell their children, and their children to another generation, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten, what the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten, and what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Awake you drunkards and weep, and wail all you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number, Its teeth are lion's teeth, and its fangs are of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed, the ground mourns. Because the grain is destroyed, the wine dries up and the oil languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes. Pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. Put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas for the day of the Lord is near as a destruction from the Almighty it comes. Is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seed shrivels under the clods, the storehouses are desolate. The granaries are torn down because the grain has dried up. How the beasts groan, the herds of cattle are perplexed because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To you, O Lord, I call, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness and flame has burned all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, because the water brooks are dried up, and the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, A great and powerful people, their like has never been before, nor will again after them, through the years of all generations. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, 
like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish, all faces grow pale. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great, very awesome. Who can endure it? Morning, folks. So I'm from uh, Maidavale, just up the hill. Name's Martin. Uh, recently I turned 44. I feel like things are going up. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, watch this space. <laughs> uh, let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Joel, and we pray that you would bless us as we think about the prophecy in this Old Testament narrative, this book, uh, that we would understand it and um, care about it, that you would help us to prepare for the day of the Lord. Amen. This morning we're going to be talking about locusts and the day of the Lord. And uh, if you ask why, the reason is because uh, a man named Joel, who uh, don't actually have too much on him apart from his dad's name, he's in the first verse of this book, uh, tells us in verse 3 of chapter 1, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Uh, it's by no accident uh, of fate or coincidence that we have these words preserved for us here in this three-chapter book originating many hundreds of years before Jesus Christ. Generations have come and gone, and the children have told children, and those children have told their children, and so on, ad infinitum, and here we are, and we will be reading the words of this book, and hopefully we will pass these words on to the next generation to be faithful to the charge. Um, and so we ask ourselves, what's going on here? Why is it important that this message be preserved even to the third millennium? Here we are, decades into the third millennium. Why is it still important? Well, let's look at the first verse. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Uh, introductions are important. We, we don't want to miss them. And this introduction tells us that what follows from verse 2 onwards is the word of the Lord, uh, which means it's going to be the Lord speaking in what follows. And of course, if you look carefully, you'll see this has to be the case in verses 6 and 7. You see the person speaking refers to the land of Israel as being my land, my vine and my fig tree. Is only one person who can speak like this? And that's the Lord. This is how God speaks. In fact, his words take us all the way up to and including verse 12. In verse 13, then, we have Joel's response to this word of the Lord. And uh, we know this because in verse 13, he refers to God as my God and as your God. And in verse 16, he speaks of our God. So clearly there's a change in the speaker. Um, 
Well, we have in verses 2 to 12 is the word of the Lord given to Joel. In verses 13 following, we have his response. Now, in the first section, what do we notice? Well, we notice that something unprecedented has happened. Hear this from verse 2, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Of course, the answer he's expecting here is no. This is really weird. This is unusual. We haven't seen this before. And this is a very important qualifier because the disaster that's described in the following verses doesn't have a precedent. It is something horrendous and out of the ordinary. And we know this to be the case because of what follows immediately in verse 3. Tell of your children and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. That kind of meticulousness to say, pass this message on, don't let this disaster be forgotten, tells us it's huge. And here it is in verse 4. What the cutting locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. What the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. There are, in fact, uh, nine different words used for locust in the Old Testament. This is a culture that appreciates locusts. How many words do you guys have for locust? <laughs> well, if you had food in the ground that was being threatened by various plagues of hopping or swarming or flying insects, you perhaps would quickly get to know what these creatures were and care about them. And this is a context in which you can lose your livelihood very easily. And so they have all these different types of locusts in this plague. But the big news is there's a plague of locusts coming, a serious plague of locusts. And locust plagues are no joke. From 1864 to 1875, that's more than, it's about a, that's more than a decade, Algeria was plagued by locusts, and the worst year of the plague was 1866. So when you think about a plague, these plagues can last for a long time. Um, and of course, one of the things that a locust plague causes is famine. The people who made it to the relief centers were described as emaciated, almost naked shadows of their former selves. They were not men, nor women, nor children. They were skeletons. One witness relates how he saw mothers supporting dying children in their laps, natives finding, fighting over the roots of dwarf palm trees or wrestling with dogs for the bones and scraps thrown out of houses. Neither was it rare, he said, to find bodies eaten by hyenas and jackals on the paths or to come across acts of cannibalism. As a result of locusts and other disasters in this region, the dead numbered more than 200,000. So, locusts can be deadly. And uh, do, do locust plagues still happen in our world today? Yes, they do. In fact, we don't have to go that far back to find a very serious locust plague between 2019 and 2022. And uh, this major plague affected food supplies in East Africa, the Abria, uh, Arabian Peninsula, and the Indian subcontinent. In fact, it was the worst outbreak of locusts to hit Kenya in 70 years and the worst in 25 years for Ethiopia, Somalia, and India. Even today, locust plagues are no joke. We might live almost 3,000 years after Joel, but we haven't solved the problem of locusts. So here's the question. What makes Joel's locust plague special? 
In what way is this disaster spoken of in these verses unprecedented? Why is this plague so bad that it needs to be told to their children and their children's children and then their children's children? And in particular, how different is it from another very famous locust plague in the Bible? Exodus 10. Anyone? What famous locust plague? Most famous locust plague, perhaps. The Egyptians, yeah. And uh, it's quite interesting if we go to that part of the Bible and just read about that locust plague, because we're told in Exodus 10, verse 5, And the locusts shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians." as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. And in verse 14 of that chapter, the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained. Neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. It's hard to conceive of a plague being worse than that. Did the locusts leave behind anything when they ravaged the land of Egypt? Quite categorically, we're told, no, they ate the whole bang shoot, everything, gone. If it was colored green, gone. Bad color to paint your house. But here in Joel, we have the Lord describing a plague to rival even this one. How does the Lord describe this event? Look at Joel chapter 2, verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. In other words, the disaster described in these two chapters of Joel is worse than the most horrendous locust plague in all of human history. So what's going on? What makes this plague the worst? And here's the answer. This is the day of the Lord. This is the day of the Lord. And we see this three times in our reading this morning. Joel 1.15. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty it comes. Joel 2 verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm in my holy mountain, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming, it is near. And then finally, the last verse of our section, Joel 2, 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome, who can endure it? What we have here, folks, is no ordinary locust plague because this is no ordinary day. This is the day of the Lord. And perhaps you ask yourselves, well, what is the day of the Lord? Well, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. 
It is a day when God comes in His holiness, in His anger, in His wrath. It is a day of vengeance. It is a day appointed for sinners to fall into the hands of an angry God. And there's a, a rich tapestry of this kind of language throughout the Old Testament. And so I thought I'd quickly paint a picture to you of this day through the writings of other prophets so that we understand when the words the day of the Lord occur in any text given to a prophet in the Old Testament, how this would cause the hearers to shudder or should. Isaiah 2 verse 10, enter into the rock and hide in the dust before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of a man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Verse 17, and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away and people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the cliffs of the hills from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. A day so horrendous, awful, horrifying. These people are wanting to bury themselves in the ground to get away from what is taking place. Isaiah picks up on this great day in chapter 13. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty will come, therefore all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil. And the wicked for their iniquity, I'll put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 34 verse 8, for the Lord is a day of vengeance, a day of recompense for the cause of Zion. So that's Isaiah's perspective on the day of the Lord. Here's Jeremiah, Jeremiah 46, verse 7. Who is this rising like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge? Egypt rises like the Nile, like rivers whose waters surge. He says, I will rise, I will cover the earth, I will destroy cities and their inhabitants. Advance, O horses, and rage, O chariots. Let the warriors go out, men of Cush and Put who handle, handle the shield, men of Lud, skilled in handling the bow. That day is the day of the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance to avenge himself on his foes. The sword shall devour and be sated and fill, drink its fill of their blood. Amos, what about Amos, the prophet Amos? Amos 5 verse 18, he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. 
or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Here's Obadiah. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1 verse 14. The, day, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so they will walk like the blind because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. So when we read about this day of the Lord in Joel, we have to understand that there's a lot more going on here than just a locust plague. And you just have to look at the reaction. Joel 1 verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep and wail, all you drinkers, of wine. Verse 8, lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. Verse 11, be ashamed, O tillers of the soil, wail, O vine dressers. Verse 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests, wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. This is no ordinary locust plague. Friends, this is the day of the Lord. And that's why, if you look closely, you'll notice that Joel's locusts are not your typical locusts. Chapter 1, verse 6, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. What is this nation? Why is this plague of locusts described as a nation? The next verse gives us a very important clue. The Lord says in verse 7, It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. What is God referring to here as his vine and his fig tree? He's not referring to a literal vine or a literal fig tree. No, he's referring to Israel. And again, if we look at the other prophetic writings, we see how God uses similar pictures and metaphors and symbolism. Isaiah 5 verse 7, For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. Hosea, he also has this perspective. Hosea 9 verse 10. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel like the first fruit on the fig tree in its first season. I saw your fathers. So what does it tell us? It tells us when we see God talking of his fig tree, his vine in Joel, he is using symbolism. It tells us that the language of the locust plague, therefore, is symbolic. And it's symbolic for something not Less than a, loc a literal locust plague, but worse. These uh, 
locusts represent a nation of people. And I want you to listen to the description of this army given in chapter 2 from verse 3. Fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. Now, unless you have a very strange view of locusts, I, don't, I haven't really met locusts that are arsonists, um, something else must be going on here. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses, and like war horses they run. As with the rumbling of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire, devouring the stubble, like a powerful army drawn up for battle. Before them, peoples are in anguish. All faces grow pale, like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each on his way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the weapons and are not halted. They leap upon the city. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the windows like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and their stars withdraw their shining. The Lord utters his voice before his army for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? If you want to find a clue as to what army God is describing here, have a look at Joel 2 verse 20. And there where the Lord has pity on his people and restores them, what happens to his army of locusts? Well, he tells us, I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land. It's a very interesting reference. And the only one of its kind in the whole book of Joel. I will remove the northerner far from you. What nation comes from the north? The answer is Babylon, beyond the river Euphrates. We don't have to guess at this because Jeremiah tells us in Jeremiah 25, verse 8, Therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations, and I'll devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. There are also uh, there are other grounds for why we might understand this locust plague as a nation of Babylon coming as God's judgment upon Israel. And that's if we look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 46 verse 23. When Babylon invades Egypt, what is Babylon compared to? They shall cut down her forest, declares the Lord, though it is impenetrable, because they are more numerous than locusts. They are without number. So we have good reason to believe that this locust plague in Joel is a depiction of what Babylon will do to Israel because of their wickedness. And in 587 BC, that's exactly what happened. And we can read the account in 2 Chronicles 36, where we're told, Therefore the Lord brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with a sword in the house of their sanctuary, and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. 
he gave them all into his hand. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. The day of the Lord came. Joel said it would come. Isaiah said it would come. Jeremiah said it would come. Hosea said it would come. Amos said it would come. Obadiah said it would come. And it came. But here's the thing. The day of the Lord is still coming. How do we know this? Because many years after Babylon sacked Jerusalem, Malachi gives us this prophecy. And Malachi is a prophet appointed for after the exile. He's right at he's the last book of the Old Testament. And in the last chapter of that book, Malachi 4, verse 1, we read this, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. And in case we're wondering when this day will come that Malachi speaks of, which clearly isn't the day where Jerusalem was sacked by Babylon. Well, we only have to read the very next verse in Malachi, verse 5, where he says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Who's he referring to here? Who is this Elijah? Well, we know it can't be the first Elijah who was taken up in a, in a whirlwind to heaven with the chariots of fire. And thankfully, we don't have to guess because Jesus tells us himself in Matthew 11 verse 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And by John, he means John the Baptist. And if you're willing to accept it, says Jesus, he is Elijah who is to come. Jesus tells us that that prophecy concerning the great and awesome day of the Lord prepared by Elijah is that day prepared by John the Baptist. Meaning that that great and awesome day of the Lord is all about Jesus Christ. Because he is the one that John the Baptist prepared the way for. And this is where it gets really interesting. Because Joel and Malachi use exactly the same expression at this point. When they're talking about the day of the Lord. And I want you to see this. In Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, this is what Malachi says. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. What do we read in Joel 2 verse 31? Joel chapter 2 verse 31. 
the day the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The expression is identical. In other words, there's a day of the Lord of which Joel speaks that comes well after Babylon destroys Jerusalem. It's ushered in by Jesus Christ himself. And friends, this is why we find Joel featured prominently in one of the most famous sermons preached in the New Testament. Anyone want to hazard a guess where? No? Peter? Peter preached the sermon? Yes. And on what occasion? Pentecost. And he quotes a whole section right out of Joel 2. You see, the people gathered in Jerusalem after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ also needed to be warned about the day of the Lord of which Joel spoke. Quoting from Joel, Peter warns the crowd and pleads with them in Acts 2.19, And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the, great, before the day of the Lord comes, a great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What is this day spoken of? Well, for those living in the first century, it was another destruction of Jerusalem. This time by the Romans in 70 AD. The day of the Lord meant judgment upon Israel. It meant the kingdom of God would be taken away from the Jews and given to the Gentiles, just as Jesus said he would do at the end of Matthew's gospel. Even at his trial, what does Jesus say to the high priest? Who questions him. Matthew 26, 64, he says, I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What is that a picture of? That is the language of judgment. When God comes on the clouds of heaven, when the son of man comes on the clouds of heaven, he comes in judgment. Jesus says to this high priest, I'm on trial before you today. My friend, you will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ when I return on the clouds of heaven. That's why the high priest tears his robes and he goes, blasphemy. And yet in 70 AD, that high priest, as far as we understood, had to see the whole city and everything that he considered precious and stood for, the center of worship, the temple, stripped, broken, burnt. Because Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus came into this world to destroy a temple and to build a new one. And because that high priest wasn't prepared to recognize the living temple of God standing before him, he had to see a day, the day of the Lord, when that old temple was crushed. In Matthew 27, you have that famous moment where you have Barabbas or Jesus. And what do the people say? Give us Barabbas. And Pilate's like, why? What has Jesus done? And they just shout louder, crucify him, crucify him. And they say this, his blood be on us and on our children. And friends, that's exactly what happened. His blood was on them and on their children in more ways than one. 
And so judgment comes. And it came in 70 AD. And Christ will return again. We have here 2 Peter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burnt up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In other words, the message of Joel is a message that still stands today. And so here are three lessons. Three lessons from these two chapters. Firstly, we need to know what times we're living in. We need to know what times we're living in. The people living in the days of Joel needed to read the warning signs. And in Jesus' day, the Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees needed to read the signs. He says to them, and we read in Matthew 16, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him. They asked him to show him a sign from heaven, and he answered them, When it is evening, you say, it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Friends, we've just had Christmas. Christ came the first time. And when he came, he changed this world irreversibly, definitively. And he will come a second time. And just like the first time, he will change this world forever once again. So we need to know the times we're living in. Secondly, we need to care about the times we're living in. How do the people respond in Joel? Joel 1 verse 5, weep, wail. Verse 8, lament like a bereaved virgin. 11, be ashamed. 13, put on sackcloth and lament. 14, consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Cry out to the Lord. Joel 2 verse 1, sound the alarm. Friends, this life is a life of war. And God blesses us with good gifts. He gives us good times. He gives us feasts. He gives us festivities. He gives us family and friends. He gives us many good things to enjoy. But at the same time, we need to know what this life is about, fundamentally. Because there comes a day when all of us leave it. And we leave it at a time that we don't appoint for ourselves. And on that day, we stand before him and give an account for our lives. And now is the time to rescue people from hell and from sin. And to warn them about the day of the Lord. You just listen to the way that the New Testament speaks about these things. 1 Peter 4 verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. 1 Timothy 6 verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5, we destroy arguments and take every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Galatians 5 verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have 
crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 5 verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have every reason to rejoice in the good things God gives us in this life, but let us never forget that we must contend for our joy with fear and trembling. Just recently, we had a friend of ours in the church, Michael Harbour, who received some very bad news. News he wasn't expecting. Him and his wife were going to have a holiday in Bali just before Christmas. And he had some stomach pains. And so he went in for a checkup. He thought it was gastritis. And by the by, they discovered he had stage four cancer. Their life is very different today. He's on chemo. And who knows how many years, months he has to live. Only the Lord knows these things. And of course, we pray that the chemo works. But I'll tell you what has been working ever since he received this news. He has been very sober-minded about his life. He's a young man. And to all intents and purposes, he thought he had many more years to live in this, in this world. But now he has cancer. And now he realizes just how finite his life is. Friends, our lives are like that too. Some of us are going to get the call back sooner than later. We don't know when that is. The day of the Lord comes. <laughs> it comes. Are you ready for the day of the Lord? And then finally, we need to tell people, starting with our own families. Joel 1 verse 3, tell your children and tell your children to tell their children. Christ is coming. The day of the Lord comes, and the day of the Lord is nearer than you think. Let us be people who are not complacent. There's a reason why Joel is still in the Bible. There's a reason why it's important for us to read a book like Joel here this morning, thousands of years after, the, after he first spoke to the people. Let's pray.